scandal. That's what one doctor calls the medical care for lung cancer patients of color. But what can you do to help change the abysmal numbers of minority populations getting lung cancer screening and treatment? Are there answers that will help you, your family, or friends who have lung cancer? The answer is yes. Here is just one example. First of all, how often do people agree to go on a clinical trial when offered? It's well over 50% of people offered who will agree. And guess what? Suddenly, gone. There is no racial difference. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But minority and ethnic populations represent less than 5% of those getting the latest treatments in clinical trials. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Today on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast, we hear from doctors in the field and researchers on the front lines talk about the inequities in lung cancer care and how you can help yourself or a loved one get the cutting edge treatments so desperately needed with a lung cancer diagnosis. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. Sarah, I had the pleasure of discussing this topic with three of LCFA's lung cancer thought leaders. They educated me not only on where we are currently, but where we are going so patients who are members of minority or ethnic groups get more and better treatment. What I find interesting is not so much the current numbers, but the movement across the country. So many conversations are now taking place at so many more levels and equitable medical treatment is receiving more consideration than ever before. I can't wait to hear our doctors' thoughts, experiences, and suggestions on how each of us can make a difference. All right, thank you all for joining us. So today we're taking a deep dive into a topic at the forefront of discussions about healthcare equity, access to the best practices in medical care for everyone, especially minority and traditionally disenfranchised populations suffering from lung cancer. We're gonna look at who isn't getting access to the latest diagnostic tests, clinical trials, and breakthrough treatments, but also why is this happening and what can we do to make a difference? We have three guests today, Dr. Raymond Osaro-Giagban, Dr. Vincent Lam, and Dr. Triparna Sen. Dr. Osaro Giagban, who's kind enough to let us call him Dr. O, thank you, Dr. O, is a thoracic, thoracic oncologist, a lung cancer specialist from Baptist Center, Baptist Cancer Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And Dr. Vincent Lamb is an assistant professor of oncology at Johns Hopkins University and a recipient of the LCFA Young Investigator Grant. And Dr. Triparna Sen is an assistant attending in thoracic oncology services, Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York, 
And she's also a young investigator award winner from LCFA. So hello and thank you to all of you for joining us in this discussion today. Thanks, Diane, happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so my first question to whoever would like to take this is how do we define the problem of medical access to the best healthcare for minority populations? How do we define that and, and why is, you know, we're gonna get into why it's not happening, but if you, if you had a panacea, if you, if you had, you know, that crystal ball, what would that look like? Triparna, would you like to start? Sure. Um, as you rightly pointed out, there is now very well-documented and significant disparities in lung cancer outcomes for communities of color, and that includes Black African-American, uh, Latino, Hispanic, and also Native American communities. And if I had to define a healthcare disparity in lung cancer, uh, I would say when two people who are at equal risk of having lung cancer, equal harm to benefit ratio from a treatment and equal stage of the disease are not getting equal treatment, I would define that in my knowledge as a disparity. And it is critical that we address disparity in all aspects, which includes eligibility, referral programs, healthcare access, and appropriate follow-up for lung cancer screening, uh, and propose strategies to address each of these areas so that we can bridge this gap. Vincent, do you, do you have some examples maybe where you personally witnessed the impacts of this problem? Yeah, and, and thanks again, Diane, for, for having me on with this uh, amazing panel. It's my first time actually uh, meeting Dr. O, and so this is, uh, this is truly an honor. Dr. O obviously is, uh, is one of the pioneers you know, in our field, and then of course I know Dr. Sen from our previous time at MD Anderson. Um, you know, I also trained, as part of my training, I actually trained at a county hospital, um, and then I also currently work at uh, Hopkins, where our thoracic center was purposely uh, located at Bayview, uh, which is an area of Baltimore uh, um, that does have a high uh, number of patients who are under-resourced, um, also a high um, African-American population, as well as other minorities. So we see this almost, um, you know, we see the, the effects of this disparity regularly. And, uh, you know, and, and even previously in my training, you know, I've, I've seen some of these impacts. So for, for example, um, lung cancer screening, it's a big deal. We actually have an intervention that can try to catch these um, cancers early and thus potentially catch them at a stage where they're curable. And we know that lung cancer screening uptake in, um, in minority populations is much lower than, than, than non-minority populations. Um, and then also uh, just in my training, you know, we see time and time again that there's delays in diagnosis um, in, in patients who are in under-resourced um, settings as well. So I think the list goes on and on, unfortunately. Absolutely, I think it does. And Triparna, go ahead. Uh, I just have to something to add. So I don't see patients. So Vincent can speak about his experience in seeing patients, but I work in lung cancer awareness and that gives me the opportunity to talk to patients and their families. And something I have seen in terms of mindset is that there's often a preconceived notion, and this I have seen more in the populations from the minority communities, is that they have the sense of guilt that I have smoked, and hence, since I have a smoking history, 
they think that they are less eligible for either screening or treatment. And that is simply not true. But I think this is a notion or a stigma that I have seen repeatedly come up in communities from these uh, ethnic minority groups. And that's something uh, that my personal experience has been. Absolutely, the stigma is such an issue. Dr. O, you have, have lived all of this. What do you think is our best course of action to make sure that these communities get the best and most effective lung cancer treatment? Yeah, thanks, Diane. Um, I, the, the first thing I would say is um, that we, we need to understand the, the true nature of the causes of uh, disparities. You know, um, one of the challenges um, with disparities research is that for most of its uh, lifespan, it has been mostly descriptive, you know, identifying who suffers, uh, who's the victim, if you will, you know, who's left behind. And on the, the inadvertent um, um, uh, effect of that sometimes is that there is this uh, natural human tendency to victim blame. Um, something wrong with you. I mean, this is not that hard. Why, why do you always seem to fall behind? So I think it's important for us to look um, etiologically, meaning at the place where the, the thing is caused in order to be able to find its solution. Because what we see oftentimes is the superficial nature of something that has resulted from something else. So increasingly, we push this idea of the multi-level uh, causes of disparities. Um, there is the person level, the patient level, okay, which is oftentimes over, you know, black people, racial minorities, ethnic minorities, women, gender, sexual minorities, you know, um, geographic, you know, uh, places where people live. Then there, there's the provider level, which begins to get uncomfortable for people like Vincent and I, you know, what, what are doctors doing that contributes to the existence of avoidable difference between person and person. And then at a higher level, you have the organizational level. Um, what are healthcare systems and other institutions doing that actually allow this to happen? And then really at the highest level, what social policies do we have that advertently or inadvertently promote the existence of disparities? I think when you take that multi-level etiology, you begin to find, first of all, there is plenty of responsibility all across the landscape. It's not just the person who is suffering who needs to deal with this. Because you know, in, in actual fact, when you now start talking about solutions, you find that there is a paradox, okay? The, the, I, I, I call it the, the intervention impact paradox. The more the targets for intervention, the less effective your interventions will be. Okay, so for example, there are way more people at risk for disparities than there are providers who give care to them. There are way more providers that, than there are institutions within which the providers work. And of course, there are fewer social policies that guide how institutions and providers work. So if we really want to 
intervene and make the problem of disparities go away. What we have to recognize is that social policies are way more effective than nagging individual people do this or do that, okay? Interventions that work at the organizational level are going to be more effective than interventions at the single provider level. And the provider-based interventions are actually gonna be more effective than patient-level interventions. So, so I think it's important for us to begin to recognize that we have seen the enemy and it is us, okay? It's not the person who's suffering this. this so giving you a specific example, what, um, working off what Vincent said, he used the example of screening, okay? So we know clearly that screening saves lives. We know clearly the places where the most lives are there to be saved. So you would think that if we have screening with CT scans that save lives and we have CT, low dose screening CT programs that need to be um, deployed, a CAT scan machine, you know, radiologists to read, uh, American College of Radiology accreditation and all of that, you would think that if everything was rational, we would see that these screening programs are more heavily deployed in the places where the most lives are to be saved. But what we see is a total mismatch. Okay, so what you find is that the highest density of um, low-dose screening programs is in the places that have the lowest per capita density of lung cancer patients. That's like looking for your keys where the light is, not where you lost them. But that's not patients saying, we don't want to be screened or not. That is social policies and organizations saying, this is where we're gonna invest the infrastructure to save lives. So, so I think when you begin to look at those kinds of examples, you see where the opportunity really exists. I think that's very interesting, especially when we're talking about screening. I wonder if you think, um, all three of you, if you think that that also would apply to clinical trials, because we know they're the gold standard for many advancers in lung cancer. And yet in a recent report from the US Food and Drug Administration on its 2018 drug trial snapshots, it showed that even though black and African-Americans make up 13.4% of the US population, only 5% are trial participants. And for Hispanic and Latinos, 18% of the US population, but less than 1% are trial participants. And we also know that, the, that on top of, are the, are the trials in the right places? Are the screenings in the right places? There's a complicated and very real history of minority groups not being treated ethically by the medical community. And that has contributed to a lack of trust. And some people would even say fear. So how do we approach this issue and make sure that all people have access to the very best options for lung cancer care? Tripana, you wanna start on that one? Sure, uh, as you very rightly pointed out that there is some amount of fear and stigma. Uh, so I think one important factor is for to develop a cultural competence for the healthcare providers, because uh, we need to understand first why communities uh, of color are not participating in clinical trials. And then we need to acknowledge that mistrust and only then that, that trust can build. And it is important in terms of clinical trials because we know over 30 drugs have been approved by the FDA only in the last five years for lung cancer. And if 
the minority community is not participating that they're actually missing out on standard of care and all these novel therapies, the targeted therapies and the immunotherapies that could be potentially life-saving. Um, and there is an important issue, not just of communities as a whole, but when you consider intersectionality, like women in these communities. So when you consider that factor, that gap is even wider uh, than the statistics that you've mentioned. So I think, uh, we not only need to identify the patients for trials, but also activate them, uh, make them uh, sort of more aware of what these drugs are, what biomarkers and biopsies and all of that actually means and how that can be beneficial. So I think education would play a very important role. And then I think, uh, as Dr. Um, o was mentioning, at the healthcare institutions, at the social level, private programs, that could launch culturally adaptive sort of outreach activities that can educate them about these new therapies and then take that stigma out of uh, enrolling in these clinical trials. Absolutely. I think that that you hit on something that very important is not only is there a fear, but there is a lack of understanding. Dr. Vincent Lamb, you've seen this, I'm sure, when you were dealing with patients where words like biomarkers and liquid biopsies and targeted, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Do you think medical educators or even family members and friends who have some medical terminology knowledge could almost work as translators, medical translators or mentors? Do you think that would be helpful? And do you know of any programs like that? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, we like to say for our lung cancer patients these days, you know, um, that are newly diagnosed, it's almost like they have to, to obtain a degree in molecular biology, you know, just to navigate their own cancer diagnosis. So you can imagine how, you know, the effects of um, disparities uh, uh, really get amplified in, in a situation like this. So really our advances in, in, in lung cancer in which we're able to, to really split the lung cancer pie so finely and have this precision medicine that's so wonderful for everybody. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't get carried you know, through for, for everybody. Um, so in terms of just being able to better uh, interpret some of these terms and um, these test results, yeah, I, definitely having somebody who is able to translate, uh, I think will be very helpful. I'm not aware of programs that are, that are already existing but I think one, you know, this is one area where we can really tap into um, patient uh, advocate um, organizations like LCFA, and then even the specific lung cancer subtype organizations. Um, so I work very closely with the ALK group, but also, you know, each of these subtypes have their own amazing sort of representative group um, that are super active on social media. So, you know, um, most everybody, uh, does have some access to the internet these days, fortunately. So I think maybe that's one easy way to get some of this information in, you know, underrepresented populations' hands in their native language, you know, if they don't speak English, um, um, and, and being able to connect them with somebody to whom they trust to help them navigate their uh, cancer journey. I do think that's a that's a very good point. Um, LCFA has a uh, has an entire podcast and a video on some of this terminology on the website, which is lcfamerica.org. So, Doctor O, 
you know, this is the Hope with Answers podcast. So I'm going to ask you, do you think we have some advances? Have we made any advances? Are we making any progress? Is there any hope here? Yeah, Diane, you know the answer is, of course, yes. So we are in about the most exciting age in lung cancer. It's an age of rapid fire discovery. I mean, every, every six months, there is a new drug just about, a new biomarker, a new drug. Um, you know, the, the, the best treatment is a clinical trial. We say this as a mantra, um, we have said it for a long time, and, and, and when people have challenged us, we have now started producing evidence, um, scientific evidence to support that notion. Okay. Um, essentially what I tell healthcare administrators who ask me, what's the purpose of research? I say, it's the opportunity to give tomorrow's treatment today. Okay. Especially when you're in an age of rapid fire discovery. So the question is, what is the problem? Because that's where your solutions are going to come from. You have to understand the problem in order to be able to solve it. Okay, so let let's let us first lay out the problem in adult oncology. Okay, the scandal of adult oncology in America is approximately, we think, guesstimating. Uh, it's about five, six, maybe percent of adult oncology patients who wind up in a clinical trial. Okay, that's the way it's been for many years. People will dispute that. Some people say, if you count all the different types of clinical trials, not just therapeutic drug trials, maybe it's higher than that. Maybe it's up, even maybe as high as 20%. In pediatric oncology, 60 to 80% of children with a cancer who wind up in a therapeutic drug trial, okay? No wonder they have streaks so far ahead, right? But we're talking about disparities. And yes, indeed, the challenge of disparities in access to clinical trials is horrible. Okay, let me just give you a, a quick snapshot. It, recently, we published a paper in JNCI Spectrum, uh, Joe Unger, who's done some dynamic work in this space, uh, and a number of our colleagues put this together, where we looked at the, F, the FDA, uh, clinical trials that led, led to FDA approvals of treatments, and we categorized them as industry-sponsored and NCI-sponsored clinical trials, and then compare that to the, you know, population distribution. Okay, so so it was it was barely what was it three four percent of uh, industry-sponsored trials that had African Americans in them. Um, NCI-sponsored trials, it was much higher. It was about eight nine percent. But the population of African Americans, obviously, is in the you know. 12 to 14% range. And it didn't matter which disease you were talking about. Even when you were talking about prostate cancer, which is proportionately higher, more frequent in black people, you still had that relationship, okay? Even worse, if you look at lung cancer trials, immunotherapy trials and targeted therapy trials that led to approvals, it's actually consistently just about 1% of those people who have been black. What's going on? on. Okay, let me give you some objective evidence of what's going on. If you ask the question, why is it that people don't wind up on a clinical trial? It turns out 
The most common reason is there are no clinical trials in the place I seek care. So it's as simple as that. It sounds simple, but you know, it takes actually measuring correctly to be able to see that. 66% of the time, and this is a meta-analysis of 13 studies that were done at institutions that had clinical trials infrastructure, okay? Which tells you that that 66% is actually a gross underestimate. Because if you expand it to everybody, you will find that even more of those places that have no clinical trials infrastructure, of course they have no clinical trials. Who goes to those places? It tends to be the disadvantage. It is rural, poor, racial minorities, gender sex minorities, and so on and so forth. Now, another piece of that pie, about 20 something percent, it is that Yes, the patient is at an institution that has a clinical trial, but the eligibility criteria are so stringent, they disqualify them. So one of the areas that we have been working hard on with ASCO, the FDA, Friends of Cancer Research, is to work with clinical trial designers like Vincent and I to say, look, this is not the kingdom of heaven. You know, you don't have to pass through the eye of a needle to get to a clinical trial. Just, you know, you're going to do your trial. It's going to be successful. And then you're going to turn around and tell everybody to come get it. Why don't you make your clinical trials realistic in the eligibility criteria to match up with the population, right? So that's another effort. Now, if you start with the segment where we have clinical trials infrastructure, we have a clinical trial and you are eligible. And you now ask, first of all, how often do people agree to go on a clinical trial when offered? It's well over 50% of people offered who will agree. And guess what? Suddenly there is no racial difference, gone. So if we're talking about solutions, yes, it's important to be culturally you know, um, competent. It's important to, you know, educate patients and so on. But, you know, uh, if I give you the example of my healthcare system, I've been in my healthcare system, Baptist now for uh, what, about 10 years, okay? The healthcare system is about 110 years old. Our first oncology clinical trials were open a few years after I came here. This is the highest volume healthcare system in a high volume pathology region. So basically, the moment somebody walked in the door, they were guaranteed previously to have no access to clinical trials. You can educate them all you want. They will not get on a clinical trial. And so as you start saying, okay, we want to build clinical trials access, guess what you run into? The doctors begin to say things like, look, I'm in private practice. I'm not an academic oncologist. If I wanted to do clinical trials, I would have gone to Johns Hopkins. I am here at Baptist, leave me alone. It's not the patient level, it's provider, institution, and our social policies that only now are beginning to encourage 
dissemination of clinical trials access. You wanted an example. I'll give you the example of the NCOR, NCI's Community Oncology Research Program. Because what NCOR has done is said, okay, we know that there are all these research powerhouses, you know, that, you know, uh, see all these patients and they do a wonderful job designing and executing clinical trials. But we know that, you know, it's only 15% of patients who go there. 85% go elsewhere to community healthcare systems. So we are going to invest in the rollout of clinical trials research infrastructure in such places. And not only that, but they actually also specifically carved out certain institutions they call minority underserved NCORs. I happen to be PI of one such, the Baptist system. That's what allowed me to be able to begin to build out infrastructure into Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee, which were places that used to be research deserts. So, so those are some examples. That's extremely hopeful. But at the same time, I'm sitting here thinking that so many of the people that are listening to this podcast today are patients. So my question to any one of you who wants to answer this is, this is called Hope With Answers. What can patients do to make a positive impact, to advocate for themselves, or what can their family members do to, to advocate? Dr. O? I will tell you real quick. The best treatment is a clinical trial. Ask about clinical trial. And if the guy tries to talk you out of it, go get a second opinion. I love that. I love that. So, and, and what about if, you know, you're in a situation and um, as a patient or a family member, and you see a situation in your community where you think people are getting substandard care, what do you suggest they do? Who should they call? Dr. Triparnasen, any ideas on that? I think first they should talk to, though, though I don't see patients, I'll say that, but I think they should talk to their primary care doctor uh, and then seek help from specialists if they have access to a comprehensive cancer center. Uh, and as Dr. O rightly pointed out, go and talk about clinical trials uh, to that comprehensive cancer center. And I think there are some large organizations like yourself uh, that are designed uh, for everyone living with lung cancer to have those resources. And as Vincent pointed out, there is social media and, but there are minority specific organizations who actually advocate for uh, these disparity issues. And there are several websites out there. And uh, another place is lung.org, which is American Lung Association. They put out the state of lung cancer every year. And there is a special minority uh, disparity section on that page uh, that gives you resources. So I think uh, going to these web pages will give you a basic idea, but I think there are minority-driven uh, websites and resources that are available right now because disparity is now a huge issue and people are getting more and more educated about this. Uh, and I think there are resources out there. Yep. And Diane, if I may, just to kind of briefly circle back on some of the organizational and systemic um, changes that need to be made um, to help affect and improve this problem. Um, you know, this is hope with answers, right? And so along with the NCI, you know, NCOR program that Dr. Ho has mentioned, um, that's truly needed to try to, to um, uh, improve the uh, ability of, um, and the infrastructure uh, 
of, of, of sites in these upper underrepresented um, areas uh, to run clinical trials. Um, Hope also looks like uh, some of the other changes that are afoot, which include, for instance, this trend towards allowing more remote consents um, for clinical trials, uh, um, and also trying to decentralize our clinical uh, trial procedures and assessments. Can you also explain what a remote consent means, just for somebody who's listening and might not know what that means? Absolutely. So, you know, oftentimes, so because a clinical trial is a formal study, um, you do have to, you know, if, if a patient is interested in participating in the study, uh, they have to give formal consent, and the and the and 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 that is done by you know signing uh, an informed consent document, which outlines uh, what the trial uh, entails and what the potential risks and harms may be, and then what the potential benefits are, um, and so oftentimes uh, this is required to be done in person. Um, but as we know, uh, participating in a clinical trial requires a lot of logistics, including just, you know, things that people overlook, like expenses of transportation and parking. And, and maybe I work, you know, during the day, seven days a week, I can't actually go take some time off, um, you know, uh, or at least I, I want to try to minimize my time away from my work um, because I need to keep my health insurance <laughs> to participate in this trial. So, you know, being able to do as much of the clinical trial procedures, including consenting, including maybe blood draws that you can actually get closer to home as opposed to having to travel again to your, you know, your, your academic center. All of these are part of, uh, you know, the answers to try to, to, to really uh, roll out more of these um, programs in areas that people really needed the most. So what I hear from each one of you is that there is hope and that we are making strides um, to move forward with people of minorities uh, and, and ethnic backgrounds who maybe before weren't thinking about this. I know there's a lot more to do, but do you think, you know, I'm going to go back to you, Dr. O, because we kind of talked about this at the top. Do you really think we're making the kind of progress that we should be making, or do you think that we have a long way to go? We're making progress, but we have we have a lot to do because as we we have not tackled these problems um, um, comprehensively in the past. Um, we we were really blinded previously to the enormity of the impact. So I'll give you one example. One of the things that I noticed is that you know pharmaceutical companies are beginning to wake up to the fact that there is no business case to be made by locking out whole segments of your potential market, okay? Um, one of the things that they, they, in the past, maybe they had a past where you proved your drug worked and then you could go use it for everybody, but now the FDA is beginning to ask questions because we're beginning to see that, that um, we are missing huge opportunity. Uh, I'll give you two very specific examples. Again, immunotherapy, big game changer. Uh, Nobel Prize won, uh, for, you know, because of immunotherapy just a few years ago. It's transforming all of oncology, not even just lung cancer. Okay, the clinical trials. It was only about one percent of the people who were black. Now, as we're analyzing large data sets. 
we're finding that black lung cancer patients actually derive a greater benefit from immunotherapy than other racial groups. So what does that mean for a pharmaceutical company? Well, if you knew that early, maybe it would have cost you less money to run your clinical trial, and maybe your results would have been better, and maybe your market share would be even bigger. So, so people are beginning to wake up to the fact that health equity, okay, and this is my real key take-home point, it's not doing somebody a favor. It's not altruism entirely. It is actually at the heart of our self-interest, no matter who we are, because it's not a zero-sum game. You know, whether we are a body politic or an institution that is rewarded for providing high-quality care or a provider who is rewarded for encounters with patients or a pharmaceutical industry that wants to sell you highly effective treatments, what's there not to you know, to push for. We all stand to win by expanding equitable access to high quality care. And I think that's a great take home is that we all stand to win from having discussions like these and looking for opportunities. Yes, Dr. Triparna said, go ahead. I'd just like to add one point from the research perspective and uh, progress that I've been seeing is that there is a lot more funding and grants now dedicated towards research in health disparity. And I think that's a very important step in the right direction because earlier people used to uh, not have so much research capital to be dedicated into analyzing these clinical sample data, like the data that you're getting that the black people are actually, um, um, they are responding well to clinical trials. And so now I think there's a lot more drive, not just from the NIH, but also from private institutions that fund lung cancer, that there are funds dedicated to the disparity studies. And I think that's a really uh, step in the right direction. And I think that will help a lot for lung cancer researchers now to go back and do those kind of studies and to have more data uh, to convince people that this is actually an area uh, that can be improved a lot. So the bottom line is that there is hope, and we are making strides, but we still have a long way to go. Yes, what I realized is that as a patient or patient advocate, we each have the power to make a difference in health disparities by educating ourselves on the steps to take, asking our doctors questions, and looking for information on websites like LCF America to get the latest information. We hope you've enjoyed this Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. Please consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 